You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Visit bpn.fm to discover more. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hello, I'm Jason Robert Brown, and this is The Fabulous Invalid. <laughs> Welcome to The Fabulous Invalid, Broadway's podcast, where we present essential conversations with a curated roster of the best, most important, and innovative theater makers working today, from actors to writers, directors, designers, and everyone in between. We took our name from the title of a 1938 play by Kaufman and Hart, which has since become a loving nickname for Broadway itself, always deemed on the verge of decline, yet always bouncing back, The Fabulous Invalid. I'm theater savant Jamie Dumont. And I'm Rob Russo, writer and theater critic with StageLeft.nyc and Stage Left the podcast. Well, Rob, I feel like I've said this a lot in uh, the two years that we've been doing this, but today is a very special day. <laughs> yes, it certainly is. And why is that, Jamie? <laughs> well, Rob, that's because today we're talking to none other than Jason Robert Brown. Yes. Oh my gosh. We are such huge fans. I mean, talk about someone who's literally in our ears every day, right? (laughs) Yes, absolutely. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Well, for those who somehow don't know, I don't know, if they beamed in from Mars this morning and decided to listen to this podcast, um, Jamie, who is Jason Robert Brown? Well, he is a three-time Tony Award-winning composer, lyricist, conductor, arranger, orchestrator, director, and performer. He does it all. He's an all-around music man. Yeah, for sure. And of course, you know, if you're a fan of musicals, and chances are that if you're listening to this podcast, you are, you're no doubt familiar with his roster of shows, which includes uh, Songs for a New World, Parade, The Last Five Years, uh, 13, Bridges of Madison County, and Honeymoon in Vegas, um, in addition to his contributions to Urban Cowboy and Prince of Broadway. Jason Robert Brown is also an accomplished concert performer and recording Mm. artist with two solo albums independent of his musical theater work and a monthly residency at Subculture in NoHo, where he collaborates with some of the most exciting artists in the business. I have had the great pleasure of seeing him perform there. Yes. I think everyone should, when we can go back, you should see something at Subculture. Yeah, it's such a great venue. It's a great venue, and the stuff that they do there, you Mm -hmm. really feel like you're in this special moment because it's never going to happen again, and it's really a rare treat. Yeah, 100%. Well, before we get to our interview, I have 
one uh, one little mea culpa to get off my chest, and it's actually Jason Robert Brown related. Um, oh my God, what have I you know, done? I know. Well, you know, we used to have a segment on the show called Take Two, where we would do Take Two and and correct mistakes we had made in prior episodes. Well, um, we just haven't I, made any mistakes. Well, yes, we've just been so perfect. But no, um, in in our in our episode about Bernard Gersten, our tribute episode to you know that extraordinary producer and, and nonprofit leader, I somehow I don't know why lumped in Songs for New World, Jason Robert Brown's um, song cycle into the list of shows that were done at Lincoln Center while he was there. And that's not true. Uh, it was it premiered at the WPA Theater downtown. So I wanted to get that off my chest, lest anyone think that I'm ignorant of Lincoln Center Theater history and Jason Robert Brown history, uh, Songs for New World, which I like, am absolutely in love with, WPA Theater, not Lincoln Center. Robert Russo, I can say with a surety that no one would ever think or call you ignorant, ever. <laughs> <laughs> but well, we all make mistakes, which is why we have take two. So. Exactly. So take two. Take two. And on that note, let's get to Jason Robert Brown. Let's do it. Thank you so much for joining us today. We're delighted to have you. You've had a residency at Subculture for over five years now, which has produced, I think, 58 concerts to date. I was lucky enough to see you and Betty Buckley last November. Which oh, that was a pretty good one, yeah. Oh, I've seen Betty many, many, many times, and I think that was one of the best concerts I've ever seen. The two of you together, were it was magic. You know, Betty and I uh, had known each other for a long time, and we always said we were going to do something together. But then it was never exactly obvious what we were supposed to do because I don't write that many shows and it's not like she can just say, oh, I'm going to have Jason Robert Brown come in and conduct or whatever it was. So we kept talking about it and we never really knew what to do. And then finally I said, listen, there's no money in it, but do you want to come and do these concerts with me at, at Subculture? Because I've been doing them for five years now and we've sort of got it down and I think the audience would get a kick out of it, but it would also give us an opportunity to really explore things with each other and make music together and really do that. And, you know, Betty loves being a musician. You know, she's such an extraordinary actor that you forget that about her, that, that what she really, you know, underneath, she just wants to be, uh, you know, a singer and she wants to make music with other musicians and her taste is amazing. So we got to really play around and find some good stuff and, uh, you know, it helped that she had done a whole bunch of my songs already. So we half of the program she already knew. But then we got to really find some new fun things. Yeah, your music really f suits her voice beautifully. And I agree with you about the musicianship. I mean, I think there's a reason she puts out an album every year. You know, she's very, very prolific in that department. Um, so thank you for that. It was a real treat. I'm glad you could get in. We did everything we could to keep the riffraff out, but I guess you snuck through. Got, got in. I was in the first row. Are you kidding? Oh, well, that's the, that's where we put the riffraff, actually. <laughs> yeah. Good to know. Well, I was able to watch your uh, most recent concert, number 58, online the other day. 
and it was a you know a live stream event with Shoshana Bean and Ariana Grande, and a remarkable group of musicians as always. I was wondering, you know, it was such a perfect production for you know these times online. Uh, I was wondering how it all came about. Well, the I mean, the first problem we had was that we really did have a show scheduled for uh, for April, and so mm-hmm. we didn't want to not do it. Uh, we are in fact not doing May because we're just too burned out and it's too hard to do these things. But, um, but for April, we really wanted to do it, but we didn't want to do something that didn't serve the music. And I think streaming is very difficult. Uh, the live streaming, uh, is not, it, it, it's not satisfying to me. Um, and for a lot of reasons, not just the sort of latency and the inability of the musicians and the singers to all play at the same time and any of that, but just, it's just unreliable. And I said, why don't we do something that really allows us to make music? What do we, what do we have to do to make some music out of this? So we, um, we all, you know, we're all used to making demos in our houses, except for our bass player, Randy actually had to go buy some equipment because he literally had never had to record in his house before, (laughs) but we all did. And it was just, I mean, essentially it was just making a TV special with all of us being kind of amateurs at doing it. And then, you know, uh, we wrapped it all up with some professionals. We had, uh, Jeffrey Lesser, who's been my record producer for 20 years now, you know, he came in and he helped me, uh, assemble all of the tracks and ultimately mix them. Um, and then we had a wonderful editor in Los Angeles named Jody Benstock, uh, who worked with Alan Smith, who's our usual videographer, uh, to cut it all together. Um, you know, none of it was especially expensive, I guess, but it was really about we wanted to make sure we did it right. And so, you know, some of those songs, there were tracks that went back and forth and back and forth and back and forth, you know, six or seven times until we all could make music with them and we all felt good about the music we were making. also helps to be honest that uh, you know of those six songs the band has been playing four of them for years now you know I mean, right. a long long time uh and uh so they pretty much know how to do what they have to do and i i you know i really enjoyed it and i i love doing it but it was sad it was a sad thing to do i don't i don't like making music that way mm-hmm. As I was watching it, I was I, I was imagining each of you in your own apartment, you know, just sort of singing or playing solo, and how what what, what that experience must be like. It's the opposite of what I got in this business right. to do, <laughs> you know. And I, yeah. and I honestly, I think there are some people, uh, and not even not not a few, I mean, many musicians who really do enjoy the just putting on their headphones and sitting and getting lost in tracks and 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 sitting in their own world. But I'm really all about making music with other musicians. That's that's the main thing that I want to do in this world is to to 
create something sort of that's about people sparking off of each other and, and uh, what that ignites. And it's, it's just hard to do it all by yourself. Uh, you know, I, uh, I kind of, at this moment, I envy those musicians who, uh, who really can enjoy just getting lost in their own, uh, in their own world. Um, for me, I really need all the stimulus of everyone else and what other ideas they're going to throw at me and all that stuff. Well, it was really wonderful. So yeah. thank you for that. And, and I have to say the sound quality was excellent. I don't know how you achieved it. It, it must've taken a lot of work. I, you know, it's, I, I, it was a priority is how we achieved it. We really, it was the main thing and, and more than what it looked like, we were mostly concerned that it sounded good. So we spent yeah, a lot I, of time on it. Good. I, yeah, it, it certainly showed. I, I think of all the things that I've, I've, I've listened to, it's, it's the best sound quality, um, uh, out there. So it, it, you, mission accomplished you know i also wasn't gonna drag ariana and shoshana into this situation and then not make them sound perfect you know you know i I have reputation and uh, you know relationships to preserve here so i you know i we we went out of our way to do it 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 does help i mean again everyone was recording on actual microphones and and uh, doing stuff like that instead of what i'm doing right now which is yelling at my computer but um, right it, it makes a big difference. That's for sure. It certainly does. Um, speaking of relationships, I, uh, I watched you on stars in the house the other day. And, uh, I learned something about you that I didn't know, which was that you're a big Edie Gourmet fan. Oh, who's better. Who's better than Edie Gourmet. No one. And I, and I have nobody. To, I, I, and I have to tell you, I then went and listened obviously to the, the, uh, arrangement that you did for Andrea Burns of uh, little brains, little talent. And you really nailed it. Just a little this up and a little that up with an emphasis And those Don Costa arrangements, that's, you know, I grew up thinking, oh, that's what I want to do. I want to, I want to make bands sound like that. I want to support singers that way. So, you know, the, the one I did for Andrea is sort of, I mean, it's a gag because I'm stealing a lot of stuff from, you know, different, uh, different arrangements, but, um, I, oh, the Gourmet. Oh, yeah, it's heaven. again t- talk about a talk about a true m- musician and a and a and a and a, a unique voice that will never be uh, replicated again. I, I agree. Yeah, the best. Mm-hmm. Well, speaking of um, things we admire and uh, inspirations, I also learned while watching Stars in the House that you are a big Muppet file, uh, oh, and that you absolutely. really wrote the score to. Honeymoon in Vegas as an audition to work for the Muppets. So, well, I mean, I, I you know, I, I said that sort of as a joke, but I, no, of course, I really of course. did. I did hope that uh, you know, somewhere along the line, somebody would say, "Hey, you know, who'd be really great at writing for the Muppets? That guy who did Honeymoon in Vegas." Um, <laughs> right. I, I know I worship them. They're, they're you know, I, I'm not as up on current Muppet stuff as I, as I am on the you I'm know sure. the stuff that was when I was in you know when I was growing up. But that's the best stuff. I mean, I, that's what I grew up on, you know? Well, that's my Uh, feeling, you know? Exactly. (laughs) Well, so I have to ask, who is your, your Muppet avatar? Well, I mean, obviously it's probably Dr. Teeth, but I, it's, I mean, I'm not really a Dr. (laughs) Teeth guy. So if you ask, I I am most likely Fozzie. Um, 
Yeah, I'm probably a fuzzy, but but other people would uh, would uh, say differently, and I, I have been told that I am the Dr. Bunsen Honeydew of uh, of music. <laughs> so um, I'm I'm open to I'm open to uh, responses now. Anyone who wants to uh, to write in and tell me what uh, what Muppet I am, yeah, uh, I, I'm happy to take it. I had for years a a, a Beaker T-shirt that I wore mm-hmm. around, and and I really. I don't feel like I am Beaker, but I feel for Beaker. I really, my heart oh, goes out to Beaker. I, I, uh, He's very uh, sympathetic. Yeah. yeah. Well, I think that, you know, I think there is a movie in the Beaker story. What, you know, how did Beaker become Beaker and how did he end up there and all of that stuff. It's it's the untold backstory in the Muppet uh, I think the Muppet it's the lore. It's the Beaker origin story is what I yeah. think you're talking yeah, about. Yeah, no, exactly. Yeah. Well, a question that we love to ask composers and lyricists is what, are your musical influences? What are my musical influences? Uh, I mean, I, I've been answering the question the same way for so long that I feel now I should just sort of say something totally fucked up just to uh, to throw you off the scent. But um, <laughs> you know, when I when I was growing up, it was always uh, Leonard Bernstein and Stephen Sondheim. Uh, you know, the, both together and separately. Um, but Bernstein introduced me to so much music, not only of his own, but just through his conducting uh, and, you know, through his enthusiasm for music, that there's so much I learned from that. And at the same time, I was growing up in the 70s and the 80s. And so there's a lot of dopey pop music that really, really got me going. And of course, Billy Joel uh, is a huge uh, influence on my sound. Uh, but I think uh, those are the kind of formative things. And then the the real, like, the spices, uh, once I started paying attention to how stuff gets written and what is it, I think you've got Joni Mitchell and Paul Simon are kind of key uh, in that. Uh, and then, you know, Stevie Wonder is probably uh, sort of wandering around in there. And then I got <laughs> deeply into uh, into the minimalists. I got into Steve Reich. Uh, and to Philip Glass and Fred Krzyzewski. And I was, I was sort of really way into to that world uh, for a long time. And sort of all of the American symphonists of the 40s and the 50s, you know, there's a lot. The great thing about being a composer is that, you know, you just are part of this stew. And uh, I happen to love music. You know, people say, what kind of music do you listen to? But I listen to everything. I just, I love music. Uh, and so I... Um, I, I listen to anything and uh, and I pull from the strangest places and there have been, you know, uh, songs of mine that were inspired completely by songs that I would never admit that I even listened to. But, you know, I happened to be, you know, sitting at Virgil's while I was, you know, in between <laughs> shows and over the radio, I heard something and I was like, wait, I love that. Um, so I, I take it from everywhere. Uh, you know, I'm, I definitely show my age. I mean, I think my influences are very much about I'm a I'm a 49 year old guy who grew up in New York. And I think you can hear that if you listen to my music, you would know exactly that stuff about me. But at the same time, I I'm just sort of open to whatever noises come in and whatever sounds come through me. Uh, so, I mean, and maybe that is the the way in which I was most influenced by Bernstein, you know, is just that ability to say anything can be music uh, and i'm i'm open to it down there on the street someone's playing salsa someone's playing disco someone's making something burn someone plugged in a guitar and shooting fireworks and i say 
Well, one thing that I've always wondered about is, you know, composing music and writing lyrics are obviously two different and distinct skills. Uh, yet some of the best songwriters in Broadway history, yourself included, uh, do both so well. So on one level, you know, that shouldn't make sense, right? That one person can master such different mediums of expression. And yet an elite few have. So what do you think explains that? Well, I'll tell you the truth. For singer-songwriter people, and that is sort of how I think of myself most, mm. uh, that's natural. You know, the division of labor that is sort of part and parcel of what we think of as Broadway or even, you know, for operas or any, you know, theatrical thing where the words are one person and the music is somebody else, uh, that is not a natural division of labor to me because I grew up with Billy Joel and Joni Mitchell. You know, right. I grew up with Carol King. I grew up with people who do both. And, you know, it's true that Elton John doesn't write his own words, but you wouldn't have even known that unless you were paying attention because he sang them. And so it always seemed to me like it's all supposed to come out of one person. The music is supposed to come out of the same person who sings those words. Uh, so I recognize that it's weird. And honestly, if I could stop writing lyrics, I would. It's torture. Um, <laughs> and it's, I mean, it is the thing that slows me down most. I, I mean, I would write all day long, except I just have to rhyme something. And God, is that hell. Um, I, I remember once I just wrote on Facebook, you know, that I, uh, if it weren't for this rhyming thing, I might be good at this. And, uh, <laughs> and Lin-Manuel wrote back, if it weren't for the rhyming thing, I wouldn't have anything. <laughs> and, uh, and you know and it's just true that we all sort of gravitate into different parts of what it is that feels comfortable and feels easy and for me i mean i could come up with melodies and harmonies and, and all of that stuff i i love doing that all day long but the minute i have to you know give the characters the things that they have to say and figure it out exactly right it just takes an eternity for me she likes hockey, no, I swear. She likes guys with thinning hair, and I love Betsy. She loves Betsy. She likes pizza and Chinese, Louboutins and mac and cheese. God, I love Betsy. She loves Betsy. She likes swimming, writing letters. She likes watching double headers. She drinks bourbon and sake and even likes Rocky Three. I'm amazed and I'm impressed, but the thing that I love best is I love Betsy and she loves me. We saw you um, at the parade reunion event at New York Public Library for the Performing Arts uh, back in January. And, oh, wow, um, yeah. It was a fabulous event. And I think, you know, both Jamie and I were both struck by the way that you described, you know, the craft that went into writing the opening of that show in particular, you know, musically. Uh, and it was, it was such a window for us into why a particular piece of music might be so effective dramatically and why another attempt that doesn't have that same sort of craft or intelligence behind it might, you know, fall flat and fail. So I'm wondering, I mean, you've just alluded to, you know, the fact that lyrics will take you a long time. Do you write many drafts of a song before getting, you know, getting it right, whatever that means? I try not to because I hate it. I mean, I yeah. really, I hate throwing songs away because they take me so long to write in the first place that uh, the idea that I've written it now, oh God, you need to go do it again, uh, is just torture. I do a lot of writing a chunk of the song in my head before I sit down. Um, I realized that I do this the other night. I was walking the dog and I have a, a, a piece that I'm working on uh, for a, a show that I'm doing now. And 
I was thinking, oh, I know what that song is supposed to be because we've been talking about it for a while and it's time for me to write it and all of that. And so I started, as I was walking the dog, I was working through the song in my head, what I thought it would be. You know, it's not about so much these are the lyrics and this is the music, but it's sort of like this is the mood and this is the idea and this is the, like this is the title and sort of just mushing it all around in my head and just sort of starting to stream it out. And the interesting thing about it was that as I was doing that, I hit the roadblock and I was like, oh, wait, that's not the right idea for the song. Mm. And as I hit the roadblock and started to find my way around it, I was like, oh, over here, this is actually the right idea for the song. This one is sitting over here. I may be wrong about that. You know what I mean? But at the, at, in the moment, I was like, this is this is why I, I, I if I can go over to here, maybe this is what makes the song go. And all of a sudden, once I did that, then a whole other thing started unlocking itself and I could follow that. And it I, I didn't hit a roadblock. You know, I just kept going with it. And I think that is my process all the time is that I've got this mental work that I do where I see the song and I follow my way through it until I get up to the point where I'm like, oh, no, wait, I can't do that one. But if I never get to the point where I stop, then I write the song, which <laughs> sounds sort of bananas. But I think that is the process. I think it is a lot of that for me that, um, you know, with the old Red Hills of Home, for example, I, I'm... I, I know that Alfred had an idea about everyone sitting on the porch of an antebellum house in the South and singing a sort of anthem to the, to the way that it used to be. And I suspect that I took that idea and started walking down the street with it until I hit a roadblock that I couldn't get around. And it's just that, that process, once I hit that roadblock and said, all right, it's not that, but what is it? What, why did I hit that roadblock? What is it about this? And I, oh, it's, I don't like all the people. I don't like the, the whole idea of a whole bunch of people sitting on a porch because I have to individuate them at some point or I have to say, who can I do it with one person? And if it was one person, who would that one person be? Oh, if it was a soldier, then I, I have something. If it's a soldier and he's young and he's going off to the war, now I've got something to do. Oh, and if it turns out that when we go forward 50 years and we – then it's the same soldier, but now he's lost his leg and he's remembering what it was. Then I've got now the whole shape of this. And as I'm doing that, as I'm working through it, I don't hit any roadblocks because I, I know how to write this song. And it may be that any other writer would come up with that idea and say, oh, no, and bang into a roadblock at any given point in it. And I just didn't because the kind of writer I am, that's the song that I wanted to write. The lives that we led when the Southland was free. We gave our lives for the old hills of Georgia. survives of the old hills of Georgia, but I close my eyes and hear all the treasures we held dear. I always think the difference between writers 
is really just about, you know, it's not about can we write a song or can, it's the thing that we do well is because it just unlocks certain, uh, you know, I, it, it's like a, a maze, you know, and there are just certain doors that will unlock for you as you go through it because of who you are and what you've listened to and what turns you on and what gets you excited that some other writer would just not open those doors. He'd open entirely different ones or she'd come to a, an entirely different way of doing it. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Mm. Your song, Hope, um, you wrote that the day after the 2016 election. Um, and I, I heard you say that that was a song that poured out of you. So clearly there weren't any roadblocks on that particular song. Was that, um, was it, that sounds like that's a unique experience. Do you have any indication of why that song just poured out of you? And, and, and do you have other examples of when that happens and you, you don't find a roadblock? There have been a couple of times when I'm responding as Jason Robert Brown, as opposed to as a character. There are a couple of times where I'm responding to the world where I feel like I know what my response as a person is and I can articulate it. You know, hope is a very simple piece. Uh, You know, uh, within it, it's, you know, it's got its own complications, but uh, you know, it's musically a very simple thing. I had a very similar response um, after the shooting at Newtown. Um, and I, I wrote a song called 26 Names, which I wrote uh, that day, which was just a setting of the names of all the people uh, who had been killed. So there are times, I think, when the, when the world tells me uh, that I'm supposed to say something. Sing a song about hope I'm not inspired much right now But even so I came out here to sing a song So here I go I guess I think That if I tinker long enough One might appear And look, it's here One verse is done I think what I'm often trying to do as a theatrical writer is to get to a place where I am in the character's head as well as I am in my own head when I write as myself. And I think that takes a while. You have to sort of build the character's world well enough 
inside yourself that you can step into that character. And I, it just takes a while. And I, I think musically it takes a while in addition to the lyrics. I think characters sing in a certain specific way and you have to really find what that is or else you're in danger of betraying the character. Have you ever had an example where you couldn't get inside a character's head, where it was really a struggle? I'm always, uh, I'm always bad at, at bad guys. Oh. Villains mm. are very hard for me. Um, because I think I'm just, I, I was working on a project with a screenwriter uh, a couple of months ago, and he said to me, well, you know, he had proposed an idea, and I said, well, what if they said this in response? And he said, you can't be that reasonable all the time. It it kills the drama. And it's true <laughs> that uh, I would like to believe that everybody was actually acting for good reasons and in, you know, in the best interests of the world. It's a romantic thing. I think people think of me as very cynical, but my cynicism comes from a genuine hope, a constant, ridiculous uh, hope that people are really going to be doing what they think is best. Um, and so I find it very hard to write bad guys and, and villains and uh, and stuff like that because I I just can't I I can't get to the side where you just see them be evil you know they're just wicked people doing wicked things I, <laughs> I it's just not I, I don't buy it but it, but I acknowledge that it is you know it's true and also that the drama requires it I had a lot of trouble with uh, when we were doing thirteen I had a lot of trouble with Brett the jock uh, because. Mm-hmm. He was supposed to be a jock, which, first of all, was I spent my whole life avoiding those people. So I, you know, I had no idea <laughs> what, what, yeah. what they were supposed to say. But then uh, it was also that I, I couldn't figure out if he was evil because I thought most of the jocks I knew weren't evil. You know, they were not interested in me and their interests so far, uh, you know, detoured around mine that it seemed as though they were diminishing anything I was interested in. But uh, but is he evil? Is he selfish? Is he just stupid? And I, none of those things are, are fun to write for me. Stupid people are not fun and, and evil people are not fun. And, I, you know, I think it's why I have so much trouble writing comedy is that comedy does rely on a certain sort of, uh, you know, a, a, a joyful idiocy, a kind of like, <laughs> well, you can't possibly mean to say that. And uh, I, I think I'm, I, I'm so... I'm, to my own detriment, I'm so thoughtful all the time that it's just, uh, it's hard for me to write uh, those characters. You know, I, I, I get there when I have to, but uh, when we're working on the movie of 13 now and uh, we're still back trying to make Brett make sense because uh, I, I never liked it in the, uh, in the Broadway version. <laughs> and so we sort of tried to recalibrate it because I, I just think I've met so many great 13 year old kids in the last 10 years since that show started. And even the jockiest of them are not evil or stupid. And I thought, well, then why do we have to write them that way? So uh, that's the long, and all of these are the long answer. As you can tell, I'm into long <laughs> answers today. So are we. Yeah, we always are. Um, well, speaking of different, you know, skill sets, um, you know, beyond obviously writing music and lyrics, um, you know, you also have orchestrated all of your musicals, either solo. Not or all or of them, but, but yeah, oh, okay. most of them, yeah. 
most of them, most of them. Um, and, you know, growing up uh, when I first, you know, became infatuated with, with musicals, I, I always assumed that the composer was the person who, who did that. Um, but of course it's, it's actually rather rare that one person does, does both of those things, at least in a Broadway musical. Is that, is that just a matter of skill set, or, or practically speaking like time? It's both. Um, yeah. There are, there are specific sort of weirdnesses about how you have to orchestrate a Broadway musical as opposed to just sort of orchestrating something you hear in your head. But, you know, a, a Broadway musical is about how many human beings you have and what they have to do and how they have to do it. Mm. And, uh, and there's a certain technology in Broadway musicals and how you understand all of that. So I happen to be really into it. You know, I was when I was at French Woods, when I was at summer camp, you know, all I wanted to do was sit and stare at the scores, you know, and, and stare at the orchestra parts. Um, mm-hmm. And I spent a lot of time just getting to know that language uh, and kind of educating myself about what the tradition of orchestrating for Broadway was, because it, it's very different than orchestrating for jazz band. And it's different from orchestrating for symphonic orchestra. It's got its own vocabulary. So there is there is a specific skill set around orchestrating a Broadway show, but just orchestrating anything in general requires a, 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 a obviously a, a considerable amount of literacy uh, within the uh, you know what can an instrument do, why would an instrument do it, and how do you write that down? Right. Uh, and I, you know I think a lot of singer songwriters, again the, the kind of people I grew up thinking I was going to be, they never concerned themselves much with it. Uh, because, you know, if you say, oh, I want a bunch of strings, then you go hire a string guy and he'll, you know, <laughs> put on a bunch of strings or, oh, you know, oh, I, I, wouldn't it be great to have a harp and somebody brings a harpist in, you know. Uh, but um, but I again, it was I was around Leonard Bernstein, uh, you know, I wasn't around Leonard Bernstein, but I was listening to it all the time. And so then I was sitting and listening to actual orchestral music and really diving into how that works. So I think. Again, the reason I learned how to do it is because it was fun. I wanted to know how to make music with a bunch of other musicians and how to say what I wanted to say and have them, uh, you know, be able to respond to it. Uh, you know, when I went to a music school, I went to Eastman for two years and uh, I spent a lot of time there uh, trying to be an arranger and learning what that was. Uh, but um, but then... There is a practical consideration to why you can't do uh, the orchestrations for a Broadway show. It is virtually impossible to have enough time right. to do it, uh, which is why I didn't. Uh, I, I honeymoon in Vegas, in particular, it, that kind of sound is not entirely my skill set. I knew that there were people who were better at doing sort of big jazz band stuff than I could do, and so Sebesky, who is the king of mm. that. Uh, was obviously my first choice. And even for the kind of goofy, uh, big Broadway kind of Muppet show things in the second act, you know, songs like Freaky Freaky and Every Day is Happy in Hawaii and all of that stuff, you know, I can I can hit a xylophone as well as anybody, but it, it, it's I don't, I don't really know that language, whereas Larry Blank sort of lives it and breathes it. And I was like, there, that's the guy who I want to do those songs. Betsy loves me. She's upset, but Betsy loves me. And as soon as I can show her how I've changed, she'll forget the whole Magilla. Betsy loves me. Move your hand, please. Betsy loves me. 
birds are very special here. <laughs> it's true. But lady, I've got other things to do. A beautiful sunset. Please start the car. The sound of the loop. Please start the car. Is it getting warm? Uh, don't take that off, please. Come on, we make freaky freaky. I am not making freaky freaky. The turn of the ocean. Oh, uh, the rise of the moon. Catheters, iron lungs. The animal yearning. Uh, malaria. It's time uh, to make freaky rabies. Freaky. Egg salad. With parade, it was a little different. Uh, parade, I orchestrated. Uh, the smaller things. I orchestrated Leo and Lucille's uh, music. But for the big stuff, I really did want a kind of orchestral sound that I thought I don't know how to do. And, you know, 20 years on, 25 years on, whatever it is, I think I could do it now. Uh, I've got a lot more experience with it, and I've spent a lot of time studying it and learning how to do it. But back then, I really needed a teacher. And so Don Sebesky was the best teacher in the world. I had listened to his orchestrations. He had an album called... Uh, Symphonic Sondheim, which was him and the London Symphony Orchestra, I think. And it was just instrumental arrangements of, of uh, Steve's songs, but these gorgeous, beautiful, uh, you know, smart, really well, th- you know, basically bringing it back to Ravel. Uh, and so I listened to that and I was like, if I could get that guy to orchestrate Parade, that would be great. And someone introduced me and he said, yes. So I got to do that. But then, uh, you know, Bridges of Madison County is a very small orchestration. It's really just sort of rhythm section and strings. And I felt like I have enough time to do it, and I wanted to do it very much. And so that worked out, and that was okay. Uh, and 13, again, it was only uh, six people in the band. And last five years, it was only it's, it's a very hard orchestration for the last five years, but again, it's only six people. So, you know, I like doing it when I have enough time to do it. Uh, and... Uh, and when I know exactly what I want to say, but if there are people who do it better, I, I would just as soon hire, you know, someone who does it better than I can do it. And then I get to learn from them and I get to collaborate with them. Well, I just have to say that uh, the orchestrations for the Bridges of Madison County are more than just okay. Um, they are, you know, <laughs> it's one of the most gorgeous uh, pieces of music I've ever heard. So thank you for that gift. Absolutely. Um, you, you oftentimes conduct your own shows. I've seen you in the pit on several occasions. I've seen you on the back wall at second stage for the last five years. Is that a, an important way to stay connected with the shows? Is there a practical reason for conducting your own, your own shows? Well, I mean, I conducted the tour of Parade because I needed the money. But um, 
<laughs> the, That's a good reason. Uh, you know, but again, it, it really does come from that singer-songwriter thing. It really does come from the sense that the music is supposed to come through me. Uh, and it, it's it's weird to me that, uh, you know, I should just sort of deliver the stuff and hand it over and other people are going to make the music. What fun is that? I want to make the music. I want to, you know, I, I, I wrote the music so I could make it. You know, and I realize I can't play all the parts and okay, I, you know, I'll survive. But, you know, I, I still want to be involved in the making of the music. So for me, if I can, you know, stand up and conduct uh, the Bridges of Madison County, then I get to really, that music comes through me. It's, it is too difficult to be the music director uh, while you're the composer of a new show. It's just too much. It, it, your, your, your ears are being pulled in too many directions. And, and the music director of a Broadway show is as much an administrator as you are a musician. It's a, it's a very heavily administrative job, a, a relationship job. But if I can step in every once in a while and get to make the music, it's just pleasure for me. It's, it's a, And not only pleasure, but it feels like it's my obligation to the music. I'm supposed to be there to help make it. I'm never worried to walk the wire. I won't do anything just half-assed. But with the stakes getting somewhat higher, I got a singular impression. Things are moving too fast. I found a woman I love. And I found an agent who loves me. Things might get bumpy, but some people Do you have a favorite song that you've written? I have a favorite song that I've written. I mean, they change all the time. <laughs> I don't know. What, what comes to mind today? Uh, literally what comes to mind is how many times people ask me that question and I never have an answer. Um, <laughs> all right, let me ask you this. Do you have a favorite song that you wish you had written? Do I have a favorite song that I wish I had written? I, yeah, I mean, I wish I'd written a song that made me some money. That would have been nice. Um, <laughs> no, I, I, here's the deal is I think there are a lot of composers who are doing amazing work, and I listen to their stuff, and I think, ooh, ooh, I wish I could do that. But the joy of being me is that I can then say, oh, well, maybe I will go and do that. And so, you know, if I'm listening to, you know, Shana Tao put out a great album a couple of years ago and I was just listening to it and I was thinking, you know, I want to do something like that. And I thought, well, nobody's stopping me. I can just do that. I can do my version of this. What is it that I want to do? And so, you know, I hear Jacob Collier or I hear Sean Colvin or I hear, you know, or uh, what Stephen Sondheim is doing or I hear some Benjamin Britten piece. And I, I just think, ooh, I want to be in the middle of that world. And you know, luckily, I can take a shot at it. I can do my best uh, to to find it and explore it. And then if it turns out that I can't come up with anything that I like that much, then I can just play their song. <laughs> and and that, that works out. I mean, you know, in terms of like, what's my favorite song that I've written? I'm just, I, I'm thinking that the what you heard at the opening of the Subculture Concert, Sanctuary, uh, was something that I wrote uh, for New Year's Eve this year and turned out, to be so weirdly prophetic about the world we were going to be in. And I had no idea. Um, and uh, so I, you know, I, there's something so beautiful and, and special about that. And also that I got to do it with my family, that my daughters and my wife are singing it with me. And that that's a thing we can still do even here in isolation. I can actually, uh, you know, 
sing with my family and we can all make music together. And I, I think of all the musicians who uh, aren't able to, to do that, that aren't able to make music with, uh, with anyone else during this time. So that feels very special and, and I'm very grateful for that. I can't hear with the children crying I can't think with the anger flying I can't breathe with my mentors dying And I, I am searching for sanctuary Will you shelter me? Will you shelter me? Searching for sanctuary Will you shelter me? Will you shelter me? I am writing your name in the air Can you see me? Can you see me? I am writing for sanctuary Will you shelter me? Will you shelter me? Well, you've been uh, very generous with your time, but we, we can't talk to you and not talk about Hal Prince, who, of course, was an extraordinary mentor and influence in your life. Yeah, you wouldn't be talking to me without Hal Prince. Oh, exactly. Right? So we had the honor of attending the memorial that you put together at the Majestic Theater back in December, which began with your magnificent overture to Prince at Broadway. Um, but as we continue to reflect on his incomparable life and legacy, uh, especially in this perilous moment for the theater, what do you think his advice would be to all of us? Oh, he would just say, keep going. I mean, you know, he, he, he would not, he wouldn't have a whole lot of patience for uh, the, the issues and the time, you know, it's just keep working, keep, keep doing it. Uh, you know, if you can't do it the way that you want to do it, do it some other way. I, the amazing thing was watching him during Prince of Broadway. You know, there weren't a lot of people lining up to produce Prince of Broadway. It was always mm. going to be expensive. It was always going to be weird. Um, but uh, in the, what, six, seven, eight years that we were all working on putting it together, he would always come up with a different way to do it if that meant that it could get done. And so it went from being a show that was going to be, you know, just all projections and four singers to all of a sudden it was a show with 38 people in it and full recreations of the sets until then, no, it will be better if we do it this way and we'll see the costumes hanging on racks behind the actors. And, uh, you know, there'll be 11 people and then suddenly it was nine people and then it's 10 and then, no, we can't do it. There's oh, we shouldn't do this number. And he was just always trying to figure out how to keep it going because the point was to do the work. And so I think, at this moment now, we could all sit around and be like, well, I mean, what's the point? And who's ever going to see a show again? And who's ever going to do anything? And audiences are never going to sit in a the theater together. And he would just be like, yeah, well, but you're still, so you do something else. I mean, they, <laughs> everybody still wants to be at the theater. And more importantly, you want to do it. You want to create things. You want to create theater. So create it. If you want to do it on the front steps and have people stand 300 feet away, then do it that way. But do it because it's, and that's what's in you. What the whole point is to do the work. Um, and I'm, I'm not Hal. I'm not, I'm not temperamentally suited to that frame of mind. I'm, writers are not directors. So, you know, I, I, I'm not all about, oh, just do it any old goddamn way and just get it out there and make sure that, you know, you, you've put your work into the world. 
you know, I'm much more of a pessimist and I'm grouchy and, oh, God, no, you know, and then I hear Hal in the back of my head saying, shut up, do it, do the work. It's your turn. If you don't do it now, when are you going to do it? And, uh, and I find that when I take that on, when I say that to other people, you know, when I get on one of these endless fucking Zoom calls and I have to, you know, everyone's gloomy and I say, well, but the point is we have to rethink it and come up with a way to do the work. I'm amazed to hear that coming out of me because I'm the last person who's usually like, oh, yeah, let's let's rah, rah. But I hear that it's Hal sitting in the back of my head and being so, you know, so mad at me if I if I don't do what he thinks I was put in the world to do. Do the work. Do it now. If there's something to say, then say it. Find your team. Find your voice. Put it out into the world. Do the work. Get it done. When you're finished, you start the next one. Will it last? Will it count? Time will tell. Fill the space. Do the work, pal. And do it well. Uh, well, to me, your your remarkable song, Do the Work, from Prince of Broadway, um, has a cousin, uh, Wait Till You See What's Next, from your last album. Um, and both prompt me to ask you, uh, so what's next? What's on the horizon for you? What are you working on right now? Well, I have a lot in the hopper, as they say. Uh, <laughs> the Mr. Saturday Night is a show uh, based on the movie that Billy Crystal wrote and directed. Uh, and... Billy is going to star in that. And we were supposed to start performances uh, in October. And that's obviously not going to happen now, but we have a plan for when we would like to do it and how we would like to do it. And it all depends on the way the world moves. So Mm -hmm. I guess the next big thing anyone would hear from me will probably be that we also have a show called The Connector, which Daisy Prince and Jonathan Mark Sherman and I wrote, which was supposed to premiere uh, at New York Theatre Workshop uh, this season. But that also fell apart. Um, And so we're also trying to figure out what to do with that. So I've got those two things that are essentially done and just waiting to get burst into the world in whatever way Mm -hmm. it is. And in the meantime, I'm writing three other shows. Uh, The one that, you know, I'm allowed to tell you about is um, uh, Farewell, My Concubine, which is based on the uh, the novel uh, by uh, Lillian Lee. And then there was an incredible movie of it uh, made in the 90s by Chen Kaiga. And um, so I'm, I'm doing that. And we did a reading of it back in January, uh, right as things were starting to get weird. Um, and so luckily I have all of this time now uh, when I'm not sitting on a podcast uh, to be working <laughs> on that and the other shows and trying to figure out, uh, you know, what they're supposed to sound like for the time when we're finally able to all get together and do this thing again that we all love so much. Well, we will let you get back to working on Farewell, My Concubine, which is very exciting to me. I was a big fan of that film. Um, but before we do, I have one final question, and that is, what was that, sh- what was that show or experience that made you want to work in the theater? Um, that's an interesting question. What made me want to work in the theater? I mean, first of all, who are we, right? I mean, if we weren't genetically engineered somehow to want to do this, we would do anything else. Um, You know, I remember I did 
in fourth grade, there was some school production of Macbeth. Never mind that it was Macbeth in the fourth grade, but um, <laughs> you know, and I got Banquo. And I was really pissed off that I didn't get Macbeth, but Banquo still had a good death scene, and then he came back as a ghost. So it was actually it was a pretty good part. Um, so that was that was fourth grade, and I was already like some sort of goony theatrical by then. Um, and, you know, I, I went to see maybe my second Broadway show was uh, the 1980 revival of West Side Story with uh, Debbie Allen. Mm. So I was clear. And I, I remember I had listened to that album a lot, uh, you know, because my dad had the, the soundtrack, the, the soundtrack and the cast album. And I used to listen to them both and try and figure out why one was different than the other one. So I think there was there was a lot that was in me that just sort of was always pushing me towards the theater it's hard to know, you know, my brother grew up in the same house as I did at the same time, essentially that I did. And he couldn't be less theatrical. He couldn't be, you know, less interested in being on the stage. And, you know, we went to the same schools and we took the same classes. It, it isn't like something happened to me that didn't happen to him. It's just that, you know, there was some bell that was waiting to be rung inside me. And it isn't waiting to be rung inside of everybody, uh, but in, it was in me. And that bell was, you know, for the theater. What's across the road? What's behind the wall? What's around the corner? And what will it take till I find my way? Will it be today? Will it be too late? Wait till you see what's next. Just be Rob here. That's our show. Thanks for listening. At this difficult time, please consider making a donation to the Actors Fund at actressfund.org. The Fabulous Invalid is a production of O&M Etc. and the Fabulous Invalid LLC and a proud member of the Broadway Podcast Network. Our theme music is by Lucky Chops. Today's episode was edited and engineered by Charles Van Kirk. You can find us online at thefabulousinvalid.com and on social media at Fabulous Invalid and on iTunes, Spotify, and wherever you find your podcasts. Be sure to tune in next Wednesday. What you can't dismiss or anticipate Just wait, wait till you see what's Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.
With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.